1: To revel in wrong think. I kind of like the one that uh, my friend Spencer Worthington turned me on to, though, here about a week ago. And that is Sapere Aude. Dare to know. Because believe it or not, it takes courage to face the truth in times such as ours. We live in some pretty, uh, up, uh, well, how, how can I put this? Uh, pretty crazy times. I was going to say times of great upheaval and, uh, you know, disaster. I don't know, man. There's great opportunity. There's also a lot of risk. What To me, the craziest part is just how utterly surreal some aspects of life have become. Things that are normal or considered part of the new normal today, that even three years ago, we'd have been going no way. Never going to happen. It wouldn't do it. Case in point, I don't know if you are comfortable with being called an extremist, but uh, it's what you are. Yep, heard it myself. President, his administration—they're—they're they're pretty serious about you know the threat that extremism poses. And frankly, if you're the kind of person who, well, I don't know, thinks that parents ought to raise their kids and you shouldn't be sexualizing young children, and that people ought to have choice and maybe shouldn't be so controlled or overtaxed by their governments, well, you—you you are definitely an extremist. Actually, Tom Woods had a had a really great piece on this recently. Um, oh, it was because of the, the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, in woefully over her head, says Tom Woods, because she warned everybody the other day about extremism. Now, if you want to know what her definition of extremism is, this is this is the one she gave. I, I like Tom Woods take. Well, Jean-Pierre gave us a deeply thoughtful answer, reflect, reflecting profound learning and extensive familiarity with the great political thinkers of the Western tradition. Just kidding. Here's her answer. When she was asked, what do you mean when you mean extremism? She says, when you are not with what majority of Americans are, then you know that is extreme. That is an extreme way of thinking. Really? Because you know what? A majority of Americans, I don't think, are really down with like drag queen story hour. I'm just saying, would that not make them extremists of, of sort? Oh, no, I see it. It only can go one way. Yes, all right, understood. Actually, Tom Woods points out, by this definition, these groups would constitute extremists, jazz lovers, vegans, carnivores, comic book aficionados, classical musicians. Now, he says, maybe she's, uh, let's be charitable. maybe she's only referring to political ideas in her definition of extremist. Well, he says, well, then the outright socialists would be extremists, too. Yet, I rather doubt the Biden White House is going to caution us about those. You know who else qualifies as extremists under this uh, definition? Yeah, that would be the entire woke apparatus. So, yeah, if if you're going to stand for anything, if you're not just going to basically hide yourself away, you know, under a rock somewhere, please don't notice me. I don't want to be criticized. But if you're going to stand for something in your life, you're going to be called an extremist. And I, I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but it seems like, uh, okay, then just embrace it, continue to be the good person that you are, and don't worry so much about the labels. But I know it's it's dangerous, right? Because it's not like the president saying, well, these people who disagree with me are extremists. He's like, we need to eradicate. We need to stop this movement. He's talking about 70 million plus people. Yeah. Like I say, we live in surreal times. Frankly, I'm, I'm encouraged in the sense that uh, there's there's a lot to, to keep track of. But I'm also, uh, I'm encouraged that you and I have an opportunity to to stand for something. I mean, it's great when everything goes well. Don't get me wrong. Life is great when there are no really difficult challenges. And right now, it feels like the challenges are mounting up in a big hurry. Not just politically. You know, culturally, I I don't know that I've ever seen a crazier, you know, uh, shift in thinking than what we see. And yet, this is this is pretty normal for for the kind of historical cycle that we're going through. This is quite normal. The unraveling gives way to full crisis, and you know, in the fourth turning, we're we're in the midst of the the big crisis and storm, and it's going to go on for a little bit longer. So it's it's going to get crazier. I'm not trying to be a you know, a masochist here. All right, goody, here comes more pain. But I would remind you that we've been handed an opportunity as individuals to become a much better version of ourselves. And, and the truth is, that kind of improvement doesn't usually happen when everything is just going so great and so comfortable that really no effort is required to live a good life. We're at that stage where, you know, sincere, sustained, serious effort is required. I just want to let you know, I think you're up to it. I think you're absolutely up to it. By the way, if you, uh, if you did watch the president's speech, or if you didn't, you know that uh, we are in a battle for the soul of our nation. I'm going to include in today's show notes, an essay from James Howard Kunstler. The title is soul man, but he's talking about the soul of our democracy, the soul of our nation. And it is definitely worth getting uh, Kunstler's take on this. He is not one to, to mince words. He gives a pretty powerful overview of, you know, what exactly is happening. And uh, I'll just give you a couple of, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll just give you a couple of excerpts here. He says, I knew that we were in for the business with that soul of the nation build up ballyhoo. But he says, I didn't exactly expect Independence Hall to be decorated in blood red and sepulchral black out of the mouth of hell for a sermon by the Lord of the Flies himself. Somehow his staff managed to get the old trickster to the, to the fiery podium on time where in his trademark inside and outside, uh, inside out and upside down mode of argument, he wrathfully inveighed against the grave threat to democracy posed by an opposition laboring to undermine our personal rights, the pursuit of justice, and the rule of law. Roger that, Kimo Osabi Now, he says, I confess, I was hoping to see MAGA superhero homie D-Clown materialize in a puff of rainbow-colored smoke right up there beside the sulfurous incarnation of Joe Biden. MAGA Republicans have made their choice, the hypothetical president shouted. They embrace anger. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. I don't think so, homie would have surely retorted, upon which homie would have whapped the party of chaos's front man with his hair-plugged noggin, upside his hair-plugged noggin, rather, with a sock full of milk duds. Homie, don't play that. Ah, well. So much for reveries of true righteousness. But he goes on to explain the situation, and it's not all just, you know, poking fun here. He has some very solid analysis. And the point is that, uh, you know, the regime is... They are scared. They would not be threatening. And and you can't convince me that the staging of that speech in in Washington last week wasn't deliberately, how can we make this as scary and intimidating as possible, including, you know, uniformed Marines flanking the president on either side, albeit in the distance. I think that uh, they're, I think the regime is afraid. And I think that the reason they're attacking us is because they know there is a reckoning coming in these midterm elections. And I don't want to sound, you know, like Chicken Little here, but I I, I seriously see the, the level of fear that I'm seeing from the ruling class right now seriously leaves me wondering if we're going to make it to those midterm elections, if they're going to allow them to take place, or if some state of emergency may come up, you know, I don't know, some yet-to-be-disclosed virus or something, and we just got to shut everything down, You know, just to be safe. We'll we'll lift this uh, this, uh, suspension of elections after the emergency is over. But something tells me that the kind of emergency that uh, they might be contemplating is never going to actually be over. It'll be a permanent kind of emergency. Sorry, but that's the way it is. Kind of like we were facing with COVID before people wised up, realized, you know what, this is being exaggerated. This is being... Uh, falsified and and trumpeted and built up as something that it's really not. And I guess I have to offer this standard disclaimer. Yes, we all know people who have died from or with COVID. Okay, I think it's a legit virus. I know there are people out there, saying, there is no such COVID virus. No, I think it's real. But I also believe that the survival rate is still 99 point something percent for people who get it so you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend a lot of time worrying about it and uh, you know I'll take common sense precautions but I'm not gonna give up living I don't I don't want to sound like a, an extremist or anything but there is no way I would go back to the uh, you need to let your family members just uh, basically die alone and lonely just to be safe no Nope, I uh, I accept that there are risks in life. Not going to go out of my way to exacerbate those risks, but I'm not going to hide from them either. And I'm certainly not going to do so. So some power seeker can better adjust their boot on the back of my neck. Not going to happen, Captain.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back.
1: You've heard me talk about GarageDoorProServices.com. And I'm just going to tell you for my friends in St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, or Colorado City, Arizona. This is the company you want when it comes to installation, service, and repair of garage doors. Whether it's for residential or for commercial needs, they will take care of you. These are American made garage doors. They offer a much faster lead time, better service. No, seriously, go to their website, garage door proservices.com. Read the testimonials that their customers have left. These guys know how to take care of you. You can call them at 435 525 2773 or go to garage door Sur- pro services, rather, garage There we go. All right, so let's take a deep dive. I got a couple of things here that are really. I think going to, to open your eyes on a couple of different subjects, at least give you some great food for thought. How can so many people have been manipulated into giving up precious things like their freedom, their autonomy, you know, their, their ability to, to make their own choices in life? Well, I've got an article here from Kit Knightley from offguardian.org, five psychological experiments that explain the modern world. And you probably have heard of some of these before, but these are, this is a great explanation as to how are people manipulated? How have we found ourselves, you know, in the situation that we're in where so many people may even suspect that something is wrong? They still kind of go along with it. They still want to support the status quo because nobody wants to be thought of. What is it? Oh, yeah, as an extremist. Kid Knightley says the world is a confusing place. People do things that don't make any sense, they think things that aren't supported by facts, endure things they don't need to endure, and viciously attack those who try to bring these things to their attention. Well, Kit says if you've ever wondered why, you've come to the right place. Any casual reader of the alternate media landscape will eventually come up with a reference to Stanley Milgram or Philip Zimbardo, the Ash Experiment, or maybe all three. And words like cognitive dissonance, diffusion of responsibility, and learned helplessness. These are phrases that regularly do the rounds, but where do they come from? What do they mean? Well, here are the important psychosocial experiments that teach us about the way that people think, but more than that, they actually explain how our modern world works and just how we got into this mess. So he starts with the Milgram experiment. And this is uh, back in 1963. Yale, Yale psycho- psychologist rather Stanley Milgram conducted a series of experiments referred to now as the Milgram Obedience Experiments. This is the one that you may have heard of in which subject A is told to conduct a memory test on subject B and to administer electric shocks whenever subject B makes a mistake. Now, of course, Subject B does not exist. The electric shocks are not real. Instead, actors would cry, ask for help, or pretend to be unconscious. All the while, Subject A would be encouraged to carry on administering the shocks. And the vast majority of subjects carried on with the test and gave the shocks, despite the fact that they wondered if they had actually killed Subject B. Now, the conclusion. In his paper on this experiment, Stanley Milgram coined the term, the term rather, diffusion of responsibility, And what he was describing was a psychological process by which a person can excuse or justify doing harm to someone if they believe it's really not their fault. So they won't be held accountable or they won't have a choice. So you know why it wasn't really their fault, even though they're pushing the button that's supposedly sending the electric shock to subject B? It's because there was a nice guy in a lab coat standing there with a clipboard. And every time they would look to him like, uh, "This person is screaming in pain." They're saying this is killing them. The person in the lab coat would say, "The experiment must continue." So, as long as somebody in authority was saying it needs to go on, they would do it. How's that for crazy? Now, there's much more about this, and again, I'm going to let you kind of discover this on your own because I want to touch on a couple of these other, um, a couple of these other psychological experiments in the course of this article. But the application of this... Well, first of all, let me go back. Kit Knightley says, in, in, in the conclusion here, in his paper on the experiment, Stanley Milgram coined the term diffusion of reality, or to responsibility, rather, uh, about people believing they can justify or excuse doing something, including harming people, if it's not really their fault. But the application of this principle is almost literally endless, All institutions can use this phenomenon to pressure people into acting against their own moral code. That includes the army, the police, hospital staff, wherever there's a hierarchy or a perceived authority, people will fall victim to the diffusion of their own responsibility. Saw this a lot during the pandemic, right? Local leaders, state leaders. Well, we're just we have to do what the CDC says. You know, the CDC has giving us our guidance, and we are bound to follow them, or the health department dictates this. And nobody really wanted to be the one to say I made this decision and I stand by it. Yeah, especially now they don't really want to stand by the. Oh, they're gaslighters. I don't think anybody really was uh, advocating for lockdowns. Now were they? <laughs> hey, some of us kept receipts. What can I say? All right, number two. And the psychological experiments that explain the modern world, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Now, this is just a little less famous than Milgram's work. This is the one done by Philip Zimbardo's uh, prison experiment at uh, Stanford University in 1971. And this experiment set up a mock prison for a week with one group of subjects, subjects designated guards, the other as prisoners. Both sides provided uniforms, prisoners given a number. Guards were ordered to only ever address prisoners by their number, not their name. And there were other rules and procedures that went into this. But in brief, over the course of that week, the guards became increasingly sadistic, dealing out punishments to disobedient prisoners and rewarding good prisoners in order to try and divide them. Now, a lot of the prisoners simply took the abuse and the infighting began between between the troublemakers and the good prisoners. So, though technically not an experiment in the purest sense, as there was no hypothesis to test, there was no control group and perhaps impacted by demand characteristics. The study still revealed revealing patterns and interesting patterns of behavior in its subjects. The conclusion was prison guards became sadistic. Prisoners became obedient, and all this despite no real laws being broken, no real legal authority, and no real requirement to stay. If you give people power and you dehumanize those below them, they'll become sadistic. If you put people in prison, guess what? They're going to act like they're in prison. In short, people will act the way that they're treated. Now, the application of this, we've all seen it. It's an endless application. We saw it through COVID. You start treating people a certain way, the majority will go along with it. And they'll blame the minority who refuse to cooperate. Meanwhile, police forces all over the world were suddenly granted new powers and then promptly abused them because the maskless and the unvaxxed had been dehumanized in their eyes. You understand what's being said here? Those reactions were engineered, not accidental. Now, from here, they go on to talk about the ASH experiment, A-S-C-H, Festinger's Cognitive Dissonance Experiment, and last but not least, the Monkey Ladder. I won't get into a whole lot of uh, detail on any of these, but there you have it. Five of the most critical pieces of psychological research ever done. And Kit Knightley says, hopefully going forward, nobody's going to be left in the dark when these concepts or experiments are referenced. So this is to give you a good primer of, of what's going on. This is not a comprehensive explanation of here's exactly why the chips have landed where they have here. But Kit Knightley says, look, the point of this article isn't just to make you, the reader, understand these experiments. It's also meant to remind you that they do. They do. The powers that be understand these experiments. There we go. The people in charge, the elite, the 1%, the party, whatever you want to call them. They know these experiments. They've studied them. They probably replicated them countless times on grand scales in unethical ways we can barely imagine. And I guess the point here is they know how the human mind works. Think about what the implications of that are. They know they can make people do anything if they can reassure them they won't be held responsible. They know they can rely on people to abuse any power they're given or to believe they're powerless if they're treated that way. They know that peer pressure will change a lot of people's minds, even in the face of undeniable reality, especially if you make them feel completely alone. Terrific article. I hope you'll check it out.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Again, I've got some fantastic stuff to share with you. You can check it all out in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. No cost, you can actually sign up and I will email my show notes to you on a daily basis if you want to keep track that way. Just go to BrianHideshow.com, click on show notes, go to subscribe, and uh, it'll, it'll take you right where you need to go. I wish I had more good news to share today because I, I try to emphasize this. I really don't want to make people more afraid. I don't want to make them more angry. But sometimes we have to just take a good, we have to take a look at what's going on here. And sometimes it involves some pretty unpleasant facts. So I don't know if it makes any difference if I told you this, but um, I pray before I, before I do this program, I, I try to find information that's going to have some kind of positive impact in terms of helping you better understand the world or that you know, fortifies your backbone when you're thinking, can I stand up? Am I strong enough? Am I brave enough that I can stand up for what I know is right? That's my goal. I really want to give you that encouragement. I can't tell you what to think. I won't presume to tell you what to think. But I certainly have, uh, I, I'm looking for information and looking for things that will help us better understand what's going on, what we need to be paying attention to, and, and best of all, where we can really have impact. Going to come back here to uh, the president's talk from last week. And I'm sorry for spending time on this. I know I'm, I'm giving him status. I'm giving him st- uh, standing that I really would rather not. But there are a few things that are worth considering here. Jeffrey Tucker has a marvelous essay on the brownstone.org website for the Brownstone Institute, The Return of Carl Schmitt and His Scheme for Regime Longevity. I'm sad to admit, I'd really never heard of Carl Schmitt before this article. But after hearing about it, it's like, oh, suddenly this makes sense. There's, uh, this, this is where this tried-and-true pattern of identifying an enemy and then focusing as much of the public's attention on this is the enemy, this is who we are against, this is what stands contrary to everything that we hold dear. I believe we could use the phrase, the soul of America, yes, is at stake if we don't stand up to this enemy. I just didn't know the origin of how that pattern was, was established. So here's what Jeffrey Tucker says. He says, the message and optics of Joe Biden's address from September 1st of 2022 were startling in our supposedly enlightened times. Now, in the mid-1930s, however, both would have been conventional politics. That's the message and the optics. There was a time in which the most menacing discovery of modern times came to be perfected in political rhetoric. That discovery was that the most successful path to, to regime stability is to unify political friends around loathing and hatred of some domestic enemy. Now, who the enemy is can change. What matters most is that the enemy is seen as an existential threat to the friends of the nation. It must be called out, rooted out, disabled, even eliminated. And the masses of people must go along with it, even participate in it. They they must be driven to feel a kind of bloodlust, a phrase that perfectly embodies the fullness of the insight. Jeffrey Tucker says the point deepens and extends Niccolò Machiavelli's prescription for political control. In his view, the priority should always be on crushing competitors to the throne. Only in this way can the prince sleep well and the people live lives of peace. Now, Machiavelli lived in times of absolute power, when the state was mortal, bound up with the life of a person. Democracy and the invention of the impersonal state changed the prescription for seizing and retaining power. It was no longer about keeping immediate competitors at bay. Now the effort had to involve the whole of the population. Well, it fell to Carl Schmitt, who lived from 1888 to 1985, the German jurist and professor who deployed all his skills in service of Hitler and yet still lived to a ripe old age. Schmitt mapped out the new path for the new age. His powerful essay, The Concept of the Political, published in 1932, remains the most poignant challenge to liberalism written in a century. Even today, it speaks clearly of the dark path to political success and stands as a blueprint for any regime to deploy in the service of survivability. Now, the essence he boiled down in a way that anyone can understand. The regime survives and thrives based on the friend-enemy distinction. Now, the friends constitute the political community. The enemies are that by which, uh, that which the community is organized against. Now, of whom the enemy consists, that doesn't matter. It can be identified by race, religion, ethnicity, age, body shape, geography. None of this is essential. All that matters is, number one, the people in power have made that decision, and two, that it's believable to the majority of politically significant citizens, which constitute the Friends. So reading that essay today from Carl Schmitt, the political ethos of Nazism is very easy to observe. Indeed, Schmitt wrote the formula not only for the animization of the Jews and and others not loyal to the regime, his scheme applies more broadly to any regime that needs to shore up its standing and obtain total power. And the killing fields are not a stretch either. Given that he writes, quote, the state as the decisive political entity possesses an enormous power, the possibility of waging war and thereby publicly disposing of the lives of men. The just belli contains such a disposition. It implies a double possibility, the right to demand from its own members the readiness to die and unhesitatingly to kill enemies, end quote. So to Schmidt, politics require war either outgoing or as a believable threat. And this war can be domestic or international. The main point is to reinforce the state's right to dispose of life and encourage the population toward a willingness to do the deed or die trying. Only through this path is the stability and longevity of politics and the state assured. Pretty crazy stuff. And yes, Jeffrey Tucker says, Schmidt is the leading political theorist of totalitarian dictatorship. Schmidt, regarding the concept of separation of powers, checks and balances, and constitutional restraints to be annoying uh, uh, impediments on the path toward meaningful life, lived through politics. Moreover, he viewed all of these attempts to limit government to be foolhardy in practice and pointless in principle. So he argued that liberal democracy is unsustainable, especially because it's dull, especially one that elevates commerce as a first principle of human peace and belongingness. This, Schmidt argued, submerges primal instincts too deeply. Heroism, battle, triumph, bravery, upheaval, and the need of everyone to make one's life count in a way that a Hegelian might understand that term. Yes, that involves bloodshed. He regarded the dream of the 19th century style liberalism to be nothing but a chimera. It longs for a society without politics, he said, but we need and require politics because we want belongingness and struggle, a mission that involves vanquishing the foe and rewarding one's own tribe that is loyal to the leader. Now, there's a lot to this article. It would be worth your time to uh, grab a quiet place to sit and read it. Might take a little bit. It's worth it, though. And one of the things that, uh, that Jeffrey uh, Tucker wants to point out here, he says it's striking how easily intellectuals and regimes can migrate to and from different ideological forms while retaining the philosophical orientation of that which they allegedly oppose. Friends and enemies become mirror images of each other, which is why Biden's speech calling for unity simultaneously called a large swath of the American electorate a threat to democracy by which he means the state he rules. So Jeffrey Tucker says, let us remember that Carl Schmidt despised America and everything it stood for, especially the idea of individual liberty and limits on government. So it's one thing to study his writings in graduate school as a warning to what it means to turn against enlightenment values. It's also another thing entirely to deploy his theories as a viable path to keeping power when it appears unstable, not only in Beijing, but in Washington, D.C., And Jeffrey Tucker says that should truly terrify all of us. Pretty fascinating stuff, and definitely some good background material on on how the president and others, his handlers and others, are setting up you know this ongoing division. By the way, I don't take this lightly. I think this is very very serious stuff. I mean, they are using the language of you know the war on terror. Why well, these people are trying to destroy our democracy, and we have to resist this? This is an existential crisis, and I don't know. I I see provocation, heavy provocation on the part of the left, and I see a lot of anger on the side of the right, which which is a dangerous thing because that that uh, patience, that long suffering, I think is is misunderstood as weakness by a lot on the left. And I'm not saying that I I want somebody on the right to start pushing back. But you know there's going to come a point where that snapback is going to occur. And when it does, holy cow, it is not going to be pretty. I'm not saying that's a good thing. You understand that. I'm just saying that that is the likely outcome. So let's not try to be too surprised.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Just a quick shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com, Monticellocollege.org, and HSLAMO.com. These are all sponsors of the program. And if you look on my website, you'll find links that will take you to each one of these businesses. Please let them know that their message is reaching your ears. All right, got a couple of articles to share here in this uh, closing segment here. Thanks to the introduction of social justice, real justice, like authentic justice, is no longer blind here in the U.S. The Good Citizen has a solid take on anarcho-tyranny and how our systems of law are being weaponized against the taxpaying public while at the very same time encouraging real anarchy from sacred groups protected by the state. Is that clear enough? Did I need to be more direct? All right, let me let me jump into this where uh, the, the good citizen. I'm going to actually, I'm going to pull up the shorter version of this just so I can do a really quick one here. A guy wakes up in San Francisco, has breakfast, showers, gets ready for his work. And as he opens his front door, he discovers someone has pooped on the stoop of his $7 million row home. Now, in a previous time, he would have noticed it earlier in the morning when he went to uh, fetch the San Francisco Chronicle the New York Times or Wall Street Journal newspapers. Today, he just stumbles past this awful surprise on his way to see if his Range Rover is still where he left it the previous night. He sees the depositor of the morning gift curled up in a mess, passed out with the heroin syringe still in his hand, courtesy of the law-abiding, tax-paying citizens of San Francisco, it says there on the syringe. Last year, the guy who walked out of his house paid $59,000 to the state of California for the privilege of this morning's experiment, or experience, rather, and another $122,000 to the federal government, which is in the process of funding tens of thousands of more armed IRS enforcers to make sure that this man or any other working citizen doesn't get any funny ideas about uh, the $1 more than they're allowed about keeping one dollar more than they're allowed from the fruits of their own labor by a government that offers them nothing in return and openly detests them. So, when this guy gets to his Range Rover, which he upgraded hev- to heavily tinted windows, thinking that might deter thieves, he finds his action did the exact opposite. The front passenger window broken again, third time in as many weeks. As he approaches the windshield, he notices an envelope beneath the windshield wipers. Oh, his tires and front bumper were just across the line of legal allowance, so he has to pay the city $350 for his urban infraction. A penny or less refusal or refusal to pay will eventually result in a bench warrant for his arrest. Now, this man will soon again vote for the very people responsible for this soft anarcho-tyranny that blesses his days and exploits his labor earnings while refusing to provide a modicum of protection of property or liberty. So the good citizen says anarcho tyranny is a term that gets very little attention or press because it originates from conservative academic social science and it exposes the destructive policies of liberal politicians with whom the media work directly in tandem to shield from any criticism. Now he says there are definitions of anarcho-tyranny floating around, various definitions, but most involve the basic the absence of basic protections assumed under state authority on the backs of taxpaying citizens who are instead made targets of persecution by the state. Now Lou Rockwell concisely described the hard version of anarcho-tyranny in a piece about lawlessness in Iraq 20 years ago, saying it's a situation in which government does everything but what it's supposed to do namely protect life and property. And the article goes on to talk about how, you know, it was sold to us on the idea of this will cure social ills like racism and mass incarceration. Or at least uh, the the government uh, interference is sold to us as curing all of these ills. And people don't see that they've been co-opted by all the institutions of power, including banking, finance, corporate America, to intentionally create socio-cultural and racial strife and that's so people don't notice the true common enemies responsible for the actual damage including but not limited to destruction of the once thriving great american middle class there's a lot to this article it would really be worth your uh, it would be worth your time to check this out This demographic shift that's taking place that's uh, driving people out of blue states, out of places like Chicago, New York City, Philadelphia, Los Angeles. Yeah, people are fleeing in droves to states where law and order are still valued. This is why Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Idaho, Montana, and other states have seen a massive net influx of people desperate and financially secure enough to flee the oppressive urban degeneracy of blue state chaos the good citizen says, you know, the natives aren't too thrilled about this demographic shift. And they're skeptical of the judgment of their new arrivals, fearing that they might not exercise wisdom at the ballot box in their newly adopted states. In fact, they fear the new arrivals will bring with them the chaos they helped fund and create where they fled. And Really, who can blame them? All right, one last article I want to share with you. This is one that I know we're all wondering at some level, how do we navigate the storm that's upon us? And Deanna Chadwell has some inspiring thoughts for what to do when you feel the earth move under your feet. Deanna Chadwell says, look, this has been happening with alarming frequency, unprecedented, unlawful, horrifying events. She says, for me, the 2020 election left me staggered. I knew the reality of the Biden win wasn't even remotely real, and yet there it was. I started pinning my hopes as thin as they were on brave and desperate lawsuits, but little by little, we realized the courts weren't going to solve this one. So we started looking to the certification process on January 6th of 2021. Surely sanity would return then. But the events of that day shook all rational people to their core. The thinking right had no reason to break into the Capitol. The process, if allowed to play out, could very well have put a halt to the big steal. But somebody thought the onslaught was worth it, somebody not connected to the conservative movement, and those somebodies have been milking that day ever since. Not only was the riot a political earthquake, but the aftershocks have been horrific. The arrest and incarceration of people the left wanted to blame has been something right out of the Spanish Inquisition. No lawyers, no charges, bad treatment, even torture. Locked in rat-infested dungeons in solitary confinement. No speedy trial for these folks. They're political prisoners. We're not in Kansas anymore. And J6 proved that. Then the never-ending show trial in the House is another aftershock. Such an illegal tribunal is as out of line as the six interrogations of Christ. No rebuttal allowed. No chance to examine one's accusers. No witnesses for the defense. So not only is the ground shaking in Washington, but the ground at the border has been one continual assault, undermining national sovereignty, decimating our youth with drugs, ripping jobs from the hands of American citizens. Oh, silly me. Is there such a thing as an American citizen or are we just subjects? And COVID, of course, was a 9.0 quake. And we're still dealing with the tsunami that followed. We read about we daily read about young vaccinated athletes who've dropped dead mid-game or died in their sleep. And the government imposed shutdown and vaccination has not only negatively affected our medical, our mental rather, and physical health, but it has destroyed any trust we had left for both the lying government and the medical community. Mostly, COVID gave us a taste for what living in a dictatorship is like. She says, I'd like to see what the history books record about this event in, say, 100 years. So, interestingly enough, she says, there are, there are a couple of things that we need to do. These are, these are not, you know, catch-all solutions, but they're a good place to start. She says, what should America do to prepare for the inevitable shocks to come? Well, some practical things that need doing. Secure elections. This involves proving that our elections have been insecure and fortifying our procedures for future elections. And it has to be done fast. And it's good to know that people are on this. Whether or not they'll be effective in curbing the deceit still remains to be seen. She says we need to work at electing the right people. That seems to be happening, but right now we're just looking at primaries. What will happen when we're down to the wire in November? It's going to be ugly, and we will need poll watchers galore. We need to work at cleaning up the education mess we're in. We're spending more and more money every year for more dismal results. Looks like our kids are learning about more sexual deviance than they are about math or science, and more anti-American racist attitudes than they are history or literature. Now, there's one other aspect that she brings up, and that is God. All good governance comes from deep understanding on the part of both the governing and the governed, of the reality of absolute truth, in other words, God. Some things are right, and some things are wrong, and we determine which is which by consulting the only final authority on things moral, the Bible. History is clear on this, the closer a society aligns itself, however imperfectly, to the precepts in the Bible, the more prosperous that society becomes. And the opposite is also true. By the way, Deuteronomy 28 gives us a real clear delineation of what happens to a nation that rejects God's commands.
0: It's a great article. I hope you'll check it out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.